Well, happy Easter, happy Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. There you go. 30% of you are still Baptists. There you go. Uh, two days ago, we gathered together on a Friday evening and on Good Friday spent time sitting at the foot of the cross and we focused on our sin and on the payment for our sin and on the substitution of Jesus in our place, and today we get the glorious empty tomb, that we are not a people who simply mourn a death, but we are a people who celebrate victory over the grave. And so we'll take a break from Matthew, we'll jump to another gospel, to John 20, like Mike just read. Uh, if you were here last year, uh, you, you know, or maybe you don't know, we're in the middle of both the shortest and the longest Easter sermon series of all time. Three sermons over three years, right? So, so John, the way John has structured his gospel in John 20 is we get the glorious resurrection account. They go to the tomb and it's empty. His clothes are laying there perfectly folded, but he is not there. And then we see Jesus encounter throughout the rest of the gospel of John, three people. We see him encounter Mary, Saw that last Easter. Today, we'll see him encounter the disciples, but primarily Thomas. And then next year, Lord willing, we'll look at him encountering Peter on the shore. And one of the things that John, the, the author of this gospel, is doing is in each encounter, he's revealing something that Jesus has just bought for you on the cross. Jesus has done something on the cross and in the empty tomb and in each encounter with these different people, we see a certain element of it. So last year we saw as he's talking with Mary, what Jesus has just bought for us by dying on the cross and being resurrected is God is not just our God, he's our father. Jesus tells Mary, go tell the disciples, I'm going to my God and your God, my father and your father. And so today, as we look at Thomas, we'll see a few things revealed. We'll talk about that in a second. But because we're, we're jumping to a whole new gospel, I want to give you a little context, just like Mike did. So we're going to pick it up in John 20, verse 19. But all before that, we get a, a classic resurrection scene where Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. She wants to bring spices to the tomb, and she finds the stone has been rolled away, and it's empty. And so she freaks out. She thinks someone has stolen the body of her dead teacher. And so she's running and tells the disciples, they've taken my Lord. I don't know where uh, they've laid him. And Peter and John, on hearing this news, take off and start sprinting. And John, the very humble author of this gospel, talks about how he outran Peter. It just seems like an unnecessary detail that Peter's reading. It's like, okay, you didn't have to say that. Uh, so John gets to the tomb first Peter comes after, but Peter rushes right in, and they see the clothes laying there. They see the folded linens laying there, but they don't see him, and they leave. And then John turns his attention to Mary, who hasn't left. She's actually in a garden outside the tomb, and she's weeping because she thinks, again, the body of Jesus has been stolen. And two angels appear to her and tell her, why are you weeping? And she says, they've taken my Lord. And this encounter with these angels doesn't convince her what's happening. And then she turns and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener. And he asks her, why are you weeping? And she thinks he's the gardener who's taken the body of Jesus. And she says, if you tell me where you've taken him, I'll go get him and I'll bring him back. And Jesus just looks at her and says one word. He just says, Mary. And in an instant, her eyes are open and she says, Rabbi, 
my teacher. And Jesus tells to her, don't cling to me. I'm, I'm going to my Lord or my, my God and your God, my Father and your Father. So that's what's just taken place. That's encounter number one. We looked at that last Easter. And today we're going to look at encounter number two. We've got a good chunk of text to cover. So we're going to see four things, four revelations of what Jesus has just purchased for us in his death on the cross and in the resurrection, in the empty tomb. We're going to see the peace of the resurrection, the mission of the resurrection, the God of the resurrection, and the life of the resurrection. Peace, mission, the God, and the life of the resurrection. So let's look at this first one, the peace of the resurrection. John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So here's, here's the setting. The disciples, though Peter and John have apparently seen the empty tomb, there's not a full understanding of what's happening. The disciples are huddled in a room together with the door locked, terrified. Why? For fear of the Jews, for fear of the religious leaders, for fear of the very people who just killed their Lord very publicly and very brutally. And so the natural thought that would probably be in every disciple's head is, who's next? If they can so easily kill our Lord whose fame spread all throughout the regions of Galilee and who everyone in Jerusalem knew who he was, this Messiah that we thought he was, how easy is it going to be to pick us off? So they have this great fear of death. Their world is kind of unraveled. But if you take it even a step further, they wouldn't just be afraid of death. Everything they've just given their life to over the past three years would seem to have been for nothing. This great kingdom that they thought was coming through, this guy who is now dead, was all that for nothing. All the Old Testament promises that we thought were going to be fulfilled in this guy who's now dead was this all for nothing. And so their world has fallen apart and they've gone to a room together and they've locked the doors and they're hiding in terror. And then, walking into the room, even though the doors were locked, Jesus comes and stands among them. And what's the first thing he says to their terrified hearts? Peace be with you. And he shows them his nail-scarred hands. And he shows them his spear-pierced side. And notice what happens. In an instant, their terror is transformed to joy. In an instant, all this fear that had flooded their hearts is transformed to joy. Now, the the peace be with you, that was a very common greeting in Jesus' day. And so if we read this too quickly, it could just look like uh, the group of disciples were a little afraid. And then they see him like, oh, good, you're not dead. And so they're relieved, right? It's primarily a story about relief or maybe even nostalgia. Their old buddy who they thought was gone is back again. And if we were to conclude that, we would miss 
the actual glorious thing that's happening. Remember, this is in the context of what Jesus has just accomplished. Remember Good Friday and remember the empty tomb. Jesus has just done something that all of history has been waiting on. He has just fulfilled something that has been the ultimate longing of every human heart since Genesis 3. So when he walks into the room and says, peace to them, this is no ordinary greeting. This is no, hi, how are you? If you've just moved here to Texas, when someone says that to you, that's a way of they're acknowledging your existence. They don't really care how you're doing. We just say that. We keep walking. So I even say, how are you doing? We never respond, right? This is no meaningless greeting. Rather, notice what Jesus does. He says, peace be with you. And then what does he do? He shows them his nail-scarred hands, as if to say, peace be with you because of this, because of what I've just done. The peace he's declaring to the disciples is a result of what he has just done on the cross. This is no ordinary greeting. This is Jesus declaring the peace of the resurrection, a peace to up to this point the world has not known and the world has been longing for. So real quickly, I want to look at three pieces of this resurrection piece, if I can use unhelpful alliteration, three elements of this resurrection piece that Jesus is showing them when he lifts up his nail-scarred hands. There's peace that they have in the world, peace that they have with God, and peace that they have in eternity. And I know you're like, you already gave us the list. You don't get to make another one. It's Easter, and so we're pulling out all the stops, right? Two lists for you guys. Peace in the world, peace with God, and peace in eternity. Let's look at these really quickly. Each one of these could be a sermon in and of themselves. Peace in the world. What I mean by the world, when I say the world, I mean the hostile, God-hating, devil-ruled, post-Genesis 3 world. The wicked world that Jesus promises you, when you go out as my people, the world will hate you and the world will revile you and the world will persecute you for my name's sake. I mean, the wicked world whose greatest weapon is the very thing the disciples are afraid of, death. Why are they cowering in a room with the door locked? They're afraid the world is going to kill them. And Jesus shows up and he shows them his nail-scarred hands and he speaks peace as if to say, guess what? I've just killed death. Here is the evidence that death is dead. I have defanged death. I've taken the world's greatest atomic bomb and I've turned it into a water balloon. Have peace. Do not fear. Death has just been conquered. There is no fear of death with this resurrection peace. In fact, in his disarming of the world, one of the things that's just incredible, this great divine reversal, we get to actually kind of now mock death. Oh, death, where is your sting? We'll see strung throughout all the New Testament. How can Paul say outlandish things like to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
as if now, as a result of this resurrection peace that Jesus is bringing, death is only a benefit to you. The world throws its greatest weapon at you and all it does is propel you into the world that you were actually made for with him. The perfect world of love, the perfect world of joy, the perfect world of peace. In the peace of the resurrection, death has been defeated, death has been defanged. So now you have peace in the world. Notice not peace with the world, peace in the midst of the world. That's the first thing. The second thing is peace with God. You were made in Genesis 1 to live in the garden paradise with God, to walk with God in the cool of the day. But since Genesis 3, you have been in absolute rebellion and been at odds with God. He's the one that gets in your way. He's the one that threatens your autonomy. He's the one that threatens what you hold most dear, which is you being God. And since Genesis 3, his perfectly just wrath has been hovering over your head. That's your sinful state before an infinitely holy and just God. And Jesus walks into the room. And he holds up his nail-pierced hands, his nail-scarred hands, and says, peace. As if to say, here is evidence that I was pinned to the cross. And that cup of wrath, as we saw, as Lee wonderfully shared with us on Good Friday, that cup of wrath that's been waiting to be poured out on your head your whole life, I've taken and I've drunk every drop. And there's no hostility left for you. There's no peace or there's no wrath left for you. There's only peace with your God because I've just taken the punishment for your rebellion. We have peace with God. When he holds out his hands, connect Easter to Christmas, he's showing the great declaration, the great Christmas birth declaration of the angels, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men that has now been fulfilled in his nail-scarred hands. What we sing at Christmas, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners have been reconciled. That's the peace that he's bringing. Upon him was laid the chastisement that brought us peace. You have peace in the world. You have peace with God. And third, you have peace in eternity. One of the things we see when Jesus is showing up and showing that he's alive, he's not just showing that he's not dead anymore. He's showing he's the firstborn of the new creation. He's inaugurating something in the same way that he got out of the grave. All those who belong to him will one day get out of the grave as well and live forever in glorious resurrected bodies. And so in the same way that those holes in his hands were once the mark of his greatest pain, now in this room to the disciples, they're the mark of his greatest victory. His greatest wounds have been turned into great Victory, And so similarly, we have peace. If we're in Christ, we have peace in eternity where you can actually know every single pain 
in your life, every single wound in your life, though we might not be able to see how this is true, we can know that it is true. Romans 8, God will work everything out for your good. There's a scene, uh, one of my favorite passages, I guess you could say, in, in the books, Lord of the Rings. I don't know if it's in the movie. I haven't seen them. I don't have 19 hours. I haven't rewatched them in a long time. Uh, but there's a scene right after Sam and Frodo have destroyed the ring and they pass out just from this incredible effort that they've done. Sam wakes up and he's somewhere that he doesn't recognize and he's smelling just sweet smells and he's laying on this soft bed and the wind is blowing through and he actually thinks he's died. He thinks he's died and gone to paradise and then he sees Gandalf and hears Gandalf's voice welcoming him and he realizes he's not dead. Something incredible is happening and he says this to Gandalf. Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? And when Jesus lifts up his nail-scarred hands, he's answering that question for you. Yes. There is no wound There is no pain that will not somehow be worked out for your good. There is no pain that will not be somehow, because of this resurrection peace, be turned to joy. Though it will come in the next life, in this life you can know, and you can be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. You can understand Jesus' words in Matthew 5 when he says, Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. There is no wound that won't be healed, no pain that won't be redeemed because of what he's done in the resurrection. So we see this resurrection peace. Jesus walks in, says, peace be with you. I've killed death. I've drank every last drop of God's wrath for you. You now have peace with God and I am making all things new. That's what I've just done. Therefore, O people of the resurrection, have peace. Have peace. So let's ask ourselves, whether you're a Christian, you never know a day, you haven't been a Christian, or you've never trusted in Jesus, do you know this type of peace? When you hear about this sort of resurrection peace, is it, yeah, that's nice, that's a nice story, Or do you actually say, that's a reality in my life? Does the latest news cycle send you into your room with the door locked in terror of the big bad world? In your relationship with God, are you constantly overwhelmed by the thoughts that he's mad at you, that he doesn't like you, that if you're a Christian, it's because he kind of has to do it so that he has to keep his promises and he won't be a liar. But at the end of the day, he really just tolerates you. Is that what you feel when you you go to pray and go before your Lord? Are the pains of your life that are really real overwhelming to you? Do they keep you from getting out of bed? Are you like these disciples before they encounter the risen Lord? If so, look at me. It doesn't have to be that way. He has purchased this peace for you to have now. Not just when you die and go to be with him, but now you're meant to walk as those who, yes, weep, but do not weep without great hope who are sorrowful yet 
always rejoicing, who when the world throws its worst at you, you say to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is meant to be a present reality. He has purchased that for you on the cross, a, a peace that surpasses all understanding. You ever thought about that? Do you have a peace in your life that when other people look at your terrible circumstances and yet see your steady peace, say, I don't understand. Your life is terrible. Why, why are you just okay with this? Why are you always confident? Why are you always so convinced that the Lord is with you in the midst of all this pain? Kind of like Job's wife, curse God and die. Do you have a peace in those moments that befuddles anyone that looks at your life? He's bought it for you in the resurrection. All you need to do is come and look at his death-defeating, wrath-taking, new creation inaugurating, nail-scarred hands and receive the peace that he has bought for you. So that's the first thing we see the peace of the resurrection. He's defeated death. He's reconciled God and man. He's making all things new. All the pains of this world are transformed into glorious things. And then the next thing we see is a huge development in the mission of Jesus. So that's what we're going to look at next, the mission of the resurrection. Look at verse 21. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are, forgi they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So, Jesus has just accomplished our salvation, accomplished it on the cross, accomplished it in his resurrection. So he's, he's won this great victory, and now here's the development. He is sending you to declare that great victory. So don't get this confused as if Jesus is saying, I've done my part, you go do your part, where now it's like our mission. Rather, Jesus' mission, his great victory on the cross, is now meant to fill the world through your announcing of it. You are meant to declare the good news that sins have been paid for, that there's peace with God. You are now the heralder, the preacher, the witness of what he has done on the cross. His mission is continuing through his disciples' ministry, and that includes you. By the way, how do you think the gospel got to McKinney, Texas, 2,000 years from this event? His disciples went out and heralded the good news of his great victory. So we're seeing this development. And notice in verse 21, Jesus says to them, again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. So notice what he's doing. You're meant to go on this mission of the resurrection with the peace of the resurrection. Everything that we just talked about is meant to be at the center of your heart as you go on the mission of the resurrection. And why is that important? We've been walking week after week after week. If you've been with us through Matthew 10, so we've seen a lot of these things. Why is it important for you and I to have this unshakable, ununderstandable peace when we go on the mission of the resurrection? Because 
this mission is very, very painful. The world has been defanged, yes, but it is still wicked. It is still incredibly hostile. You will be hated by all for my namesake, Jesus says. And so now he's showing when you go out, when you encounter this pain, I want the anchor of your soul to be this peace. And if you read the book of Acts, which is actually the spreading of the gospel, the disciples obeying Jesus here and going out and heralding, you see this all the time. Two stories. One, Paul and Silas are in the, the country of Philippi and they preach the gospel and people are getting saved and they get beaten publicly and dragged through the city and put in prison and they're in the lowest dungeon of this prison pinned up. And you know what they're doing at midnight after their backs are filleted from the beatings and they've just been publicly shamed? Singing. Singing hymns and singing praises. Why? They have the peace on the mission. Acts 5, second story, one of my favorites. These same men cowering in the room with the door locked go out and proclaim the gospel and these same Jewish leaders that they're afraid of arrest them and beat them and say, shut your mouth about this Jesus guy. And they say no and they leave their presence, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to be shamed for his name. Something has happened to them in a couple of chapters, and it's this peace. Those are men who have their soul anchored in the peace of the resurrection. These are people who know in the midst of the darkest valley, in the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So you're meant to go out on this mission of the resurrection with the peace of the resurrection. Second thing, he's sending us out with peace. Look at verse 22. And when he, Jesus, had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So there's two things that I imagine feel a little weird to you that we need to un kind of walk through. The first is uh, Jesus breathing the Spirit on them. First of all, notice Jesus isn't hanging all the hopes of his mission on our own abilities. He's not just saying, hey, fishermen, that I purposefully got because you're uneducated and people won't think I picked the smart people. Go conquer the world. He's saying the power for you to go out and spread this mission of the kingdom is going to be God, the spirit of the living God. But he breathes the spirit onto them, which A, seems very, you know, un-COVID friendly, right? Very, that's cancelable today. If this was two years ago, I would have had to pick the different passage because you guys would have been like, okay, sorry. Uh, right, he breathes on them, which is strange. That's not what happens in Acts 2. The spirit just falls, tongues of fire, and that's normal to us somehow. But what's happening here, it's, it's, it's weird unless you know what John has kind of been doing all throughout the gospel. So throughout the gospel, gospel of John, John has been alluding to the creation account. So if you know how John begins, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. What's he doing there? He's alluding to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, except he's got a massive spotlight on Jesus. 
And if you know the rest of the creation account, God scoops up dirt and he molds Adam and then he what? Breathes life into his nostrils and then he sends Adam on a mission. Fill the earth and subdue, spread my glory, spread this glorious garden throughout the earth so that my name might be great, right? That's Adam and Eve's mission after God breathes life into them. And here Jesus, as we're at the beginning of the new creation, the firstborn of the dead is here, is breathing the life-giving spirit onto them and giving them a mission. Fill the earth for my namesake. Spread my glory. You see that? John's alluding to this, saying this mission is no small thing. We're not just trying to boost our numbers to outpace Islam or something like that. This is new creation. You're going out and declaring the God of the new heavens and the new earth that will last forever, sending us on the mission, breathing the spirit. Second weird thing, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So this seems weird because it seems like Jesus is giving us the power to forgive people's sins. That's actually not what he's doing. He's saying, really, a reality of, of, of what's happening. He's sending them on the mission. He's highlighting what is going to happen as you preach the gospel. People are going to receive it or people are going to reject it. And as they receive it, their sins are going to be forgiven. That's the message of the gospel. And as they reject it, they're going to stand. They're going to remain unforgiven. So he's sending them on this mission with peace, with the power of the Spirit. And then there's one more thing that we must see or else we're in danger of evangelism, of the mission of God just being another thing we know we need to do in order to be holy. Look at what he says again in verse 21. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. If we would have been studying the gospel of John together from chapter one all the way to this point, these words would explode off the page. The main theme of John that you see over and over and over again is the Father sent me. We see it over and over, so that they may know that you sent me, so that they may know that I am from the Father. I only do what I see the Father doing. I'm the way to the Father. Or let's just say the most famous verse of all time, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he sent his Son. It is the main theme of John. And John actually tells us in John 17 why God sent the Son, why the Father sent the Son. And quite simply, so that the eternal glorious love that the Father and the Son have shared for all eternity might be poured out on you. John 1, there's this little comment uh, where John talks about the Son has eternally been at the Father's side, literally in the bosom of the Father. It's this ultimate picture of intimacy, this idea that before let there be light, the Father and the Son were in this glorious, perfectly loving, perfectly honoring, perfectly glorifying relationship with one another. Jesus even gives us further insight in John 17, 24, praying for you guys. Father, I desire that they may also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
Let me ask it this way. What was God doing before let there be light? Perfectly loving his son. Beautifully, for all eternity past, pouring out his love on his son. John paints this picture for us in very clear detail. And then the father sends the son so that you might be adopted into that fellowship. What does Jesus say to Mary? My father and your father. Jesus has come to bring you in so that you might share in the glorious love the Father has been pouring out on the Son for all eternity. He prays again in John 17, I pray that they would be in us, right? I in you and you in me, I pray that they would be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So that's the Son's mission. He's come so that you can eternally enjoy and delight in him and his father. This is eternal life that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And now, here's the question, what does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with our mission? So the father sent the son ultimately that his love might be poured out, his love for the son might be poured out on you. So now, our mission is to declare that God The picture John is painting is as you're brought in as his disciples and you share in this glorious fellowship and your heart is filled with the love of your God, he will naturally spill out from your lips. What compels you on this mission is this glorious fellowship that you've been brought into. Let me say it another way. Your your lips will pour out what your heart is full of. Matthew 12 says, out of the abundance of the heart, what? Mouth speaks. What your heart is full of will spill out of your mouth. Let me say it this way. None of you find it difficult to talk to others about your favorite movie or your favorite show or to Instagram pictures of your kids, right? Or to tell everyone how great the restaurant was that you ate at last week. Why? Because you delight in those things. Because those things fill your heart with joy and you want others to enjoy them as well. C.S. Lewis actually says the reason this is a kind of a reality in our hearts is our enjoyment of something is incomplete until it is expressed. Isn't it frustrating to delight in something, to see a glorious movie? Let's stick with that analogy. And then you don't get to tell anybody about it. You come in here on Sunday morning, you just saw Top Gun 2 or whatever you're obsessed with, right? Whatever show you're watching, and you can't tell anybody. That would frustrate you. Why? Lewis would say, your delight isn't complete until you express it to others. Sharing something actually completes the enjoyment, right? You think your kids are the most beautiful? I think my kids are the most beautiful, and I force people to look at it. I'm like, look at that beauty, right? You've never seen a more beautiful child than that, right? And if you recommend something, say you recommend a good restaurant, and someone comes back and says, that was amazing. Doesn't that fill your heart with joy? Because you love, you delight in people enjoying what is your chief treasure. Look at me. You don't just have a good restaurant in Jesus. You have the bread of life. You have the living water that will quench every thirst where no one will need to drink 
again. You don't just have a good movie in Jesus. You have the story of all stories that the best film is a faint echo of. And it's a story, by the way, that you are a part of. And when you let him fill your heart with delight, when you can come to the Father and say, Abba, Father, through the Son, and your chief delight is with him, I won't have to motivate you to evangelize. You just will. Out of the abundance of your heart, your lips will speak. That's the picture. That's the mission that John is painting for us. You've been brought in to the relationship of infinite joy. How could you possibly stay silent with something so satisfying to your heart? If evangelism, if missions, if Talking to your neighbor is a cold duty you're just doing because you have to, because you're a Christian. Let me not, I'm not, not going to yell at you. I'm going to tell you, go meet this Savior. Go before your father, who you've been adopted as a, as a son and a daughter, and let them fill your heart with delight, and then it will fix the problem. Your lips will spill out what your heart is Full of. Once he is your supreme delight, it will be your ultimate joy. It will complete the joy to express it. And let me just say, I know it's Easter, so there might be two timers in the room, Christmas and Easter. Uh, if, you know, you're here because it's, it's a religious thing to do, let me just ask you, have you ever heard this gospel? That Jesus came not to make you a moralist or an activist or a good person. He didn't just come to say, if you clean up your life a little bit, you won't go to hell. He came to live the perfect life you should have lived and die the death you should have died so that you can have infinite joy in him. That's the gospel. Maybe you've never heard it before, but that is the gospel of the scriptures. So let me equally implore you, come to him and see if he won't fill your heart with Perfect, infinite, inexpressible delight. Paul prays, one of my favorite passages in Ephesians 3. He prays for the Ephesians church and says, I pray that the love that surpasses all knowledge they may know. Two things that don't make it. This, this love that is so inexpressible, it surpasses all knowledge. I pray that they know it. I pray that they taste it. I pray that they see it. That's the gospel. Heart filled with delight in him and it pours out into the world as you go. So we have peace on the mission. We have delight that compels us into the mission. Two glorious resurrection realities that John has shown us, and we haven't even gotten to the main event of this passage. We haven't even gotten to the main person, which is Thomas. That's where we're going to go to next. So if you're, if you're familiar with Christianity, you've probably heard the story of Thomas. What do we call him? Doubting Thomas, right? And so as the story goes, uh, Thomas was weak-faithed, right? Boo Thomas, right? He shows up and he says, unless I see the nails, I'm not believing. And then Jesus shows up and says, how you like me now? And he says, I'm sorry, I believe. And the moral of the story is, don't be a doubter like Thomas, right? Which is a ridiculous way to take this story. It shows our moralistic hearts. You get mad just talking about it. The commentators will say, this story of Thomas is the crescendo of the entire Gospel of John. John, in writing his Gospel, is trying to get to this story because there's something so glorious here. 
And it's not, don't doubt like Thomas. So look with me at verse 24 and let us see the God of the resurrection. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And he said to them, unless I see his hands and the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So we've been looking at these huge, earth-shattering, new creation, defining events that Jesus has been talking about with the disciples, this peace and this mission, and Thomas isn't at the meeting. He's, he's missing for some reason. We don't actually know why. And so he shows up, and the disciples say, we've seen him. And I'm assuming tell him what they talked about, told him about the holes in his hands and the spear mark in his side. And Thomas says, pictures or it didn't happen. He says, nah, I don't buy it. He doubts. And he doesn't just doubt. He doubts, I think, as strongly as you could doubt. He says, unless I touch those wounds you say exist, I will never believe. You cannot convince me otherwise. Right? That's as strong as you could possibly say it, which, as a, as a total sidebar, uh, if, you, if you wrestle with the validity of the scriptures or the gospel, stories like this are actually evidence, ironically, that Christianity is true. Because if the disciples are just making up some story, Jesus died and then he rose again and then we went out and spread it to the world, don't you think they wouldn't make the leaders look so dumb? So the only reason you would put this in there is if it happened. Okay, so just ironic evidence for the validity of the gospel. So Thomas doubts, doubts very strongly, and then eight days go by. Plenty of time for Thomas to be like, where's he at? Where's those holes you told me about, right? Eight days go by, and then verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples, okay. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the door was locked, Jesus came, and he stood among them and said, peace be with you. So same scenario. In the room, door locked, except Thomas is with them this time. Jesus appears, proclaims peace, and then as if he was standing next to Thomas when the words left his mouth, verse 27, Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side, do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus shows up and he goes to Thomas and he says, here, here are the wounds. Don't continue disbelieving, but believe. And how does Thomas respond? In the same way, the disciples' terror, the disciples', the disciples fear was transformed into joy, Thomas's great declaration of doubt is turned into the greatest declaration of faith. Verse 28. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So, through the most famous story of doubt 
maybe in existence, we get the greatest declaration of who Jesus actually is. He's not just the waited-for king. He's not just the Messiah. He's not just the anointed one. He's not just the sacrificial lamb. He's not just the great high priest. He's not just the great prophet. He is God himself. We ultimately see who Jesus is through the lips of this doubter. Which, again, if you know the Gospel of John, is something John declares to you in the first verse. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is Jesus? Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Let me draw your attention to something. If you read the Old Testament... There's several people who want to see God's glory, who want to see God, want to see his face, and they never can. Moses, who's the picture of intimacy with God in Exodus, says, show me your glory. I want to see your face. And God says, you cannot see my face and live. I'm so glorious. I'm so holy. It will kill you. Isaiah has a vision in Isaiah 6 of the fringes of the garments of God's glory, and it pins him to the ground. No one can see God and live. And yet Thomas here is getting to stare into the face of God. Where do we ultimately see the glory of God, 2 Corinthians 4, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. Thomas, in this great moment of doubt, gives a great declaration, and he all of a sudden gets what Moses never got, to gaze into the glorious face of God himself, the one standing before Thomas, compassionately telling him to believe is the God of the universe that everything was made for. Now, one more thing we need to see that might genuinely, I'm, I'm, I'm prone to hyperbole, but this isn't hyperbolic. This genuinely might make an eternal difference in your life. It's one thing to see that Jesus is God, which in and of itself is an unbelievable revelation, but there's a greater revelation here that Thomas is seeing. If you know that Jesus is God, you might know a lot about his abilities, right? He's infinitely powerful or he knows everything, but you can be infinitely powerful and know everything and still be a tyrant. Who says an infinitely powerful God can't be wicked or evil or not loving? He could be infinitely powerful and still be a tyrant. But what is it that actually makes Thomas give this great confession, my Lord and my God? What is it that makes him realize he's getting to see what Moses never saw? Does Jesus whisper it to him? Believe, by the way, I'm God. Right? Does Peter say it to him? 
What is it that makes the light bulb go off in Thomas's head? He sees the wounds. He sees his nail-scarred hands. Thomas isn't just seeing the fact that Jesus is God. He's seeing the kind of God that he is. Who is this Jesus? What kind of God is he? I'll tell you, he's the kind who dies for you. And as Thomas looks at his nail-scarred hands, he's actually getting the purest revelation of who God is. You want to know the God of the resurrection. You want to know what God is like? Look at his hands. You want to know how loving God is? Look at his hands. You want to know how merciful God is? Look at his hands. You want to know how just and good and perfect God is? Look at his hands. You want to know that God loves you and delights in you and doesn't just tolerate you? Look at his hands. You want to know God will never let you go? Look at his hands. He who did not spare his own son for us, how will he not give us all things? As Thomas looks at the wounds, he's seeing the ultimate character of God. He's seeing who God is. He's seeing the perfect revelation of God. So again, I say, maybe you believe in God. You were told about hell. You were like, I don't want to go there. And what do you have to do? I have to believe in Jesus. Okay. But God has never been anything other than a divine Santa Claus. He knows when you've done bad or good to be good for goodness sake. And you, so you have a, look at me, false idea of God that is not the God of the Bible. Let me again encourage you, look at his hands and believe the God who came and died for you and who came to get you and came to give you resurrection, peace, and came to give you, John's final point, resurrection, life came to bring to you the life of the resurrection. So John's doubts are removed. He gets the peace, he gets the mission, and he gets the greatest revelation of who the God of the resurrection is. And then, as John is writing this, something incredible happens. He turns and he looks at you. And he tells you his motivation in writing the gospel. So look at John 20, verse 29 first. We'll look at the life of the resurrection as we wrap up. Jesus said to him, Talking to Thomas still, have you believed because you sent me? Or sorry, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now, again, if you have the false backwards doubting Thomas version of the story, you look at this and this is Jesus scolding Thomas, right? And then we move on. That's actually not at all what's happening here. Jesus is saying... Thomas, like all the disciples, by the way, believed because they saw. And Jesus turns and he gazes into the future, gazes into this room, and he says, blessed are those who believe in me, who share your great confession, Thomas, that I'm Lord and God without seeing with these eyes. Jesus turns and he looks at you. It says, blessed are those who have never actually seen the wounds with their own physical eyes and yet have your same declaration that I'm Lord and that I'm God. And then John turns and makes it even clearer for us. Look at verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, 
But these are written so that you, reader, you, Parkway Church, may believe, may believe that he is Lord and he is God, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So Jesus is saying, blessed are those who don't see me with these eyes, but rather see me with the eyes of faith and believe. And then John jumps in. He says, that's why I wrote this whole gospel, by the way, so that you might see, not with these eyes, but with these eyes, the eyes of faith, and have life in his name. And that is, by the way, how every Christian after this event, except for Paul, I guess, technically, has come to know the risen Lord. We don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. Paul in Ephesians 1 prays for them that their, the eyes of their heart might be opened, that they might see God. When I was a little kid at my Christian school in chapel, we would sing, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, I want to see you. We're singing the truth of this passage. We want to see him, not with these eyes, but we see his wounds with the eyes of faith. And we come to know him. Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, these eyes, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's how you come to know the Lord. You see his wounds. You see who he is and what he's done for you. And you declare him Lord and God. And look at that last part. All of this so that you may have life in his name. The life of the resurrection is the only true life. If you search for life anywhere outside of Jesus, all you will find is death. He came so that we might have life again over and over again in John. He's the only true life. He says this in John 1, 4. In him was life and the life that was the light of men. John 10, 10. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Only in him, not in your work, not in your kids, not in your spouse, not anywhere else. Only in him can you find life and only in him will you find true life of infinite joy from the one who is the fountain of all love, the one who is the satisfaction of every longing and the one who all beauty comes from. Robert Murray McShane, how else could we end the Easter service than by quoting Robert Murray McShane? If you're new, I quote him every week and everyone's tired of it. But he says this, when Jesus revealed himself to Thomas, he cried out with joy, my Lord and my God, if Jesus reveals himself to you in all the glory of his person, the completeness of his work, the freeness of his love, you too will be filled with joyful faith and will cry out, my Lord and my God. When Jesus unveils his matchless beauty and gives a sweet glimpse of the matchless face that was beaten and spit upon, then the soul joyfully clings to him. This is joy and peace in believing. The truest, purest joy flows from a discovery 
of Jesus Christ. He is the hidden treasure that gives such joy to the finder. You need not be afraid to take full joy that is in Jesus Christ. So, last question. Have you found life in him? You will not find it anywhere else. If I ask you, tell me about your life, what images flood your mind? Career, kids' planned career, retirement, all the busyness of your schedule, or is it him who is your life? Can you say like Paul, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. To live is Christ. Can you say the reality of your life is like Colossians 3. My life is hidden with Christ in God. He's the only true source of life. And if you haven't come to him, let me, like John and like Thomas, implore you, come and meet your resurrected God. Come and see his nail-scarred hands that were pierced for your transgressions. Come and hear his sweet words speaking peace to your soul. And come and have life in him. He emptied the tomb of death so that he might fill your heart with life. Come to him. Let's pray. Father, you are so wonderful that before you said, let there be light, you know you would say to your son, go redeem the elect. You knew John 3.16 was a reality before Genesis 1.1 was a reality, and you sent him. And you didn't just send him as another prophet to say, straighten up, Clean yourselves up and follow God's law. You sent him to be what we could not, perfect obeyers of your law. And to do what we deserve to do, which is take your infinite wrath for our high-handed rebellion. And then out of nothing but your infinite grace, offer salvation in your son. And all we have to do is receive. We open an empty hand and let you put the glories of salvation in the face of your son, in our palm. And then we immediately see that we've been in your palm our whole life and no one can snatch us from your hand. I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would inflame our hearts with the glories of the gospel, that the empty tomb would not be a once a year reflection, but a daily reality that we walk with that we would genuinely have the peace that surpasses all understanding, that we would joyfully go and declare your son's glorious victory, that we could have you, the God of all joy, as our father. And I pray that most of all, we just delight in you. We enjoy you every day. You are the fountain that we go to. Make that a reality. Our wicked hearts do not want that, but your spirit is infinitely more powerful than our rebellious hearts. We pray that in your son's glorious name. Amen.